our tendency here is we just take a book and we preach just straight through it. We work our way verse by verse, chapter by chapter through it over the weeks or months, however long is necessary. And so we've been in 1 Corinthians now for the last few months. Um, we were in Exodus prior to that, which will play a role in chapter 10 actually this morning. Um, just as you're turning, as you're looking, just a little bit of recap. In, in Corinth, what we have is, is a city that was a a kind of an economic power. It had been destroyed. Rome then reestablished it. It was a, a Greek city. Um, it had it was on an isthmus, which means it had a port on both sides of the city, and so it became just a commercial a commercial center, a port city that was very wealthy, very independent. Uh, it was reestablished with a lot of former slaves who now had the opportunity to set up their own their own way, their own families, their own business, their own situation, and so it had a, a fierce independent streak in it because people finally had the chance to somewhat kind of set their destiny. And so the, this culture developed, and because it was a wealthy city, all the different religions of the world, all the different cults of the world, all the different philosophies and thought processes in the world had landed there because those things a lot of times tend to follow where the money is. And so Corinth was becoming um, a pretty, pretty cosmopolitan city. And it had a lot of different thought processes, that, processes there. It had a lot of different temples and religious situations. And so Paul, having had spent 18 months there, is now riding back to the church, um, who is in a, a city that believes highly in, in tolerance. And, and so he is riding back to them saying, look, we're not going to build a temple, but you're going to be the temple, right? You as, as individuals and you as the collective church are the temple of the Lord in Corinth, that the people are going to learn about who he is and his character and his nature, not because of the place they walk into, but because of meeting you, of seeing the way that you interact with one another. And so Paul has been consistently through this letter talking about some of the behavioral issues that are going on in the church, saying you're not reflecting God's character accurately. And Paul and the church in Corinth would have a lot of back and forth. We know, even though we have two letters to the Corinthians in, our, in Scripture, that there are other letters even referenced in these that we don't have, that there were oral reports and people traveling back and forth. And so there was a lot of give and take with Paul and the church in Corinth. And the situation that we're in, as we are going to look at chapter 10 this morning, was really begun in chapter 8. And so in chapter 8, 9, and 10, there's kind of a singular argument going on. And what has happened is a lot of, a lot of believers in the church in Corinth are continuing to go to idol, like sacrifice, celebration, and meals at other temples. And as they go, they're basically what would happen is, a, is a, some sort of like worship service sacrifice would happen. And then afterwards, as, as the meat was prepared, they would have just a big community meal. And people would all come and celebrate and enjoy the meal. And so a lot of the believers in Corinth are writing to Paul and they're saying, look, hey, it's not that big of a deal, right? Like, we know that idols aren't real, and we know that it's just food, and so we can go do this, right? And yet there were some believers in Corinth that were, were having an issue with this, some due to theological concerns, others due to this was their story, this was their past, and they're saying, we don't really want to go back to the place that we have come from, because there was power there, there was influence there. And so this back and forth has been going. And so in chapter 8, Paul basically says, look, for the benefit of others, then we, like, we lay our freedoms down. We don't, like, lord our freedom in Christ 
to the detriment of of brother or sister in Christ. Paul continues the argument in chapter 9 by saying, so let me give you an example of how I've done this. I don't take a paycheck from you. And I don't take a paycheck because I don't want you, even though I've, and he, he lays out a biblical case from why a minister should be paid. And he says, but I don't, I'm not going to take it from y'all because I don't want you to, to say that I'm only saying the hard things to certain people because I have a Jewish patron or I'm only saying hard things to the Gentiles because, I, right, like he's saying, I want you to know that the gospel is coming at you undiluted. It, it's coming exactly the way it should. And so I'm not being paid off by anyone. And so he said, so even though I have this right, I'm laying it down for the sake of the gospel. Basically referring to chapter 8, saying I'm asking you to do the same thing, to to lay down rights that you have in Christ and the freedoms you have sometimes for the sake of your brothers or sisters. He ends chapter 9 by bringing in kind of an athletic analogy. And he starts talking about races and and world-class athletes because like the Olympics, um, this, the city of Corinth actually hosted games. They were called the Isthmian Games, where, he w- where they would have these world-class athletes come in. He says, look, we know that they train with purpose and with discipline, that they lay down rights that they have to, to eat tastier food or to, to have beverages or to, to have all these different things that they, they want, and they put those aside because they want the glory that comes from winning. And he says, in the, in the same way as Christians, he says, we're on a race. And so self-control and discipline are coming in because we see the finish line, and the finish line is being with Christ as we were created to be. And he said, so we have to see the end goal so that we will run the race with diligence and with discipline and with self-control. And now he's going to finish his argument this morning in chapter 10 with one final push. So let's begin in chapter 10, verse 1. For I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food, and they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man." God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessings that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? 
The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So Paul is ending his argument as to why they should not be going to the temples and partaking in these meals with a pretty strong, just kind of theological argument. And so where he goes in in verse 1 of chapter 10, he says, so I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. And so he immediately goes back to the Old Testament. Now keep in mind, in the the church in Corinth, they were not all former Jews, right? There There were Jewish believers, but they were Gentiles, pagans from every corner of the world as a part of the church. And so he's writing about a familiarity with the text that they would have cared about. This is one of the reasons why we alternate a New Testament book with an Old Testament book, that we believe that the Old Testament Scriptures have value, that they point us to Jesus. It's also a reminder that he does, he's not just writing saying, well, you know the Jewish story, but he says to our fathers. He's reminding us that in Christ we have but one family, and we are on one, right, we're a part of one story that even though it, it began as a Jewish story that the Gentiles, non-Jews, have been like grafted into the family. That we're, he, doesn't, he doesn't create division here, but he says, look, this is our story. We are recipients of this story. This is our story as well this morning. And so what he does is this, is he retells the story um, of the Exodus. And so if you'll remember, because we were just there a few months ago, in the book of Exodus, we have God freeing, redeeming his people from under the hand of Pharaoh, one of the world's great military superpowers, right? That he goes in and he takes his people who had been slaves for 400 plus years, who were crying out because of unfair treatment. And, and he takes them and he rescues them. And as he rescues them, he, he kills the firstborn, right? And so Pharaoh finally says, okay, you can go. And as they leave, as they flee, that Pharaoh's army then pursues them. They think they're going to die, and God opens up the Red Sea, and they pass through. And as they pass through, the Red Sea closes back up, and Pharaoh's army is destroyed. And so now they're in the wilderness, and we see this saga begin of them worshiping and celebrating God's faithfulness and rescue, and then grumbling and whining and complaining a lot, of going, what, what, have, you, what have you done? You brought us out here to die. Oh, God, you're so faithful, right? Like, just this kind of back and forth. And so, God provides for them food, right? He, he brings manna, this, this bread from heaven, right, every morning that they can go and gather. And He says, but I want you to trust me that it'll be there again till tomorrow. So, don't take more than you need, right? This, it's beginning to lay this, this idea that we can trust that the mercy of God is new every day, right? We need this still, This reminder that He meets our needs today. He doesn't give us more than we can have today. We don't get to stockpile it for future experience. We trust Him tomorrow. We trust Him in a year. That He will continue to be present. That He'll continue to be faithful. That He'll continue to meet us 
day in and day out, moment by moment, situation by situation, circumstance by circumstance. And then they're out there, and they're like, we're in the desert. We're going we're gonna to dry up. We're not going to have enough water. And he provides water as Moses strikes, right, the rock, and water comes out and, and takes care of the people. That God continues to be faithful to meet their spiritual and their practical needs, and they continue to say, well, what else you got, right? What else are you going to do? And so Paul now is bringing this story back into their, their thoughts because they would have known this story well. It's one of, until the cross, it was God's greatest story of redemption and of salvation that we have in Scripture. And so he wants, he says, look, he, and you see some of the words that he uses to make sure that they're thinking of the right story. He goes, our fathers were all under the cloud. As they were in the wilderness, they were guided by a cloud, right? It was God leading them in the way they should go because it wasn't the path that they would have naturally taken. They passed through the sea. He's talking about them running through the Red Sea as Pharaoh's army chases. He says they were, they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They ate the same spiritual food, right? God's provision of manna. They drank the same spiritual drink, right, as, as God has provided water. He's making sure that they all have this story kind of locked into place. And what he's telling them is this, is that that was kind of a, a precursor to baptism and communion, right? So, so Paul's doing some things here with this text. He says, like, look, as they walked through the sea, right, they're being, like, freed and rescued, right? He's like, it, it's, it's kind of a precursor, of, of, of a before picture of baptism. And he's like, and then they're out there, and they're drinking water from God who is taking care of their provision, and they're eating food literally from the hand of God. And he's like, we take the bread, remembering that it's Christ's body, and we take the drink, remembering that it's Christ, right? Like, and he's saying, like, we do this remembering that we were rescued. He's like, so they were rescued, and so they're, they're, he's wanting them to think about their rescue in terms of baptism and communion. He's saying they had a good start. God literally walked into a place that they could have never left and freed them from all of their past, everything, and walked them out into freedom and sent them right towards the promised land, a better place, a place of hope, a place that would be theirs. So he puts them out on a start. And so do you see what Paul's doing? He's like, hey, so you, I told you that a, a runner runs a race, and he starts it, and he has a finish line. The people of God, the Israelites, were given a start that God rescued them, not because of what they had done, but that he leaned down in their midst and rescued them before he ever gave them the law, before he ever expected anything of them, he simply rescued them. Right? Obedience came after the rescue. Right? He's reminding the Corinthian church, God doesn't rescue you because you're good. He rescues you because he's good. He starts you off, and then he gives you this finish line, this race to run. It's like, so they had a great start. They saw God work in powerful and mighty ways. They saw his care, his faithfulness, his provision, moment after moment, day after day, month after month, eventually year after year. All right. But now look down at verse 12. He says, Therefore, let anyone who stands thinks, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation, I'm, I'm sorry, the end of verse 11. 
but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So he wants them to remember the people of Israel, that they had this exceptional start as God rescued them. And he's like, but church in Corinth, us, we've had a better start than they did. We look at the, mirac- the miraculous things that happen, and we're like, man, that's way better. But we get Jesus, right? Like, what we've got is that we have seen Jesus come and live the life we were supposed to live, die the death that we so richly and rightly deserved, right? That he, he took that upon himself and then beat sin and Satan and the cross and is alive today. He's like, so we walk post the cross, like we walk after the cross, it's been revealed that God didn't just rescue one people one time from one country, that he has rescued us. He has made us his, and he has given us a start in the promised land. Now it's not a place, right? It's to be with him. That we are headed to be with him for all of eternity. That's where we're headed. And so just like the people of Israel, they had a start that was miraculous, and then they were sent in the wilderness to run their race until they got to the promised land. That we have been rescued by Jesus, and we've been sent into the wilderness, right? of our time between knowing Him and being with Him forever, to run our race knowing that the goal, the finish line, is to be with Him. So Paul is tying the end of chapter 9 here with chapter 10 together. He's saying this is the race that we're supposed to run, and the people of Israel had an exceptional start to the race. We've had an even better start to the race. We have seen that Jesus is faithful, but now we have an issue. Look in verse 6. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And so what he's done is he said, look, Israel had a great start. We've had a good start. We're supposed to be running the race. But something went awry for them. They did not exhibit, they did not, they did not show self-control. They did not finish well. Verse 6, these things took place as examples for us. Verse 7, do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And so in Exodus 32, we remember the scene of the golden calf, right? That, That Moses is on the mountain meeting with God, receiving what the people need, and they decide that he's been gone too long. And so what do they do? Even though they've been rescued and freed from their past, they look back to what's comfortable and what's familiar, right? And that was Egypt, the place of torment, the place where they had oppressors, the place where they were enslaved. And they're like, but we know it, and it's comfortable, and it's familiar, and so they create a golden calf to worship. And we see in Exodus 32 that it says they worshiped, and they ate, and they celebrated, and then it talks of, 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 of play, meaning mostly sexual immorality that began to emerge and God sends Moses back down the mountain to address it, right? And so he says, look, they had a start where they were literally rescued by the hand of God, led by a cloud through the wilderness, fed and given water, taken care of, and in the first sign of trouble, let's go back to what we know. Let's go back to our idols. And he says, they went right back. They were They went back to what was comfortable. 
So we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We see this talked about in Numbers 26, right, where they began to, to worship and, and bring in some of the gods of the region, which involved sexual immorality, right? And, and so they were trying to intertwine worship and sexual immorality and, and false religions and false gods, He then goes on to say, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. We see this story in Numbers 21 where their people are just like whining, right? Just constant whining as parents, right? You get this. You're just like, like, please stop. Like it's just this grating, horrible thing of like, I've taken care of you. You're still alive. You're going to have food and you're going to have drink. Right? And so, like, if you ask my kids, what's the one, like, my biggest pet peeve? They'll be like, it's whining. Right? So, I'm like, at what point do I, have I not done enough to earn some credibility here that I'm going to take care of you? How much more so has God done? That He's led these, this nation through the wilderness and is taking care of all their needs, and they're just like, uh, right? Just whining. God, you're not doing enough. And so serpents come and start to bite and kill them, right? Like the judgment of God falls on them. And remember, these are people who have seen the hand of God work in mighty and miraculous ways. So it says, look, they've they've been involved in false worship. They've been involved in sexual immorality. They've been involved in whining and complaining in verse 10. And don't grumble as some of them did and were destroyed. He says, like, don't be like them. Why is Paul talking about this? Because he says, look, they started the race really well. They had the hand of God with them, and they got derailed with past pleasures and past desires and past sin. They just kind of got derailed and said, God, we'll take this instead. So he's writing to the church saying, look, some of you, right now the temptation in you is really just to go off the rails to go back to the things that you've known. And he's like, it's not enough just to know the right things that we are running a race, and so we're going to have to be self-controlled and disciplined, right? We're going to pursue Jesus not so that he will save us, but because he has saved us. He has freed us. He has made us his. And so what is happening in Corinth is kind of this idea of like cheap grace, of like, Well, because Jesus has saved me, I can do whatever I want. And if I want to go eat idol meat, I'll go do that. If I want to go celebrate at a temple, I'll do that because Jesus will forgive me. And Paul is horrified. He's like, we have examples in our Scripture of people who have done this, and the judgment of God fell upon them, and they were laying in the wilderness dead. He's like, the blessing and the hand of God upon you doesn't exempt you from the judgment or the discipline of God if we are going to brazenly sin and call His grace cheap. When we realize that the one who deserved the mocking, the humiliation, the beating, the scourging, the death, and the separation from God was not Jesus, but it was us. And that He stepped in and took that place. He's like, how can we look at that cheaply? So what He wants to say is, look, it matters. God is not pleased by this. And so it's why he says, so take heed, right? I'm reminding of this, you of this, so that you don't repeat the same things, so that you don't do the same things over again. Look now at verse 14. 
So therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as sensible people. Judge for yourselves what we say. Sorry, what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? And so what he does is he begins to talk about the Lord's Supper. And he says, like, we take the cup, which is symbolic of Jesus' blood spilt for us, and we take the bread, and he's like, remember, there's only one loaf. And the reason there's one loaf, right, he's like, it's because we have one hope. It's Jesus. There was one sacrifice. It's Jesus. The one thing that unites us is Jesus. He's like, so when we take this meal... We're doing it because we're saying we're with Him, that we trust Him, that we're for Him, that we're going to worship Him. And so what was happening was the church in Corinth was going, hey, so because we do the Lord's Supper, that'll cover us doing whatever else we want over here. It's like Jesus will be so excited that we're doing what He wants here that we can just engage in whatever activity we want over here. And it will be like, but, but look at what we're doing. Like, we're doing the right thing, Jesus, here. So you don't care about our sin here. And Paul's like, no, you're wrong. <laughs> like, the Lord's Supper does not somehow like supersede and cover this sin that you're going to so blatantly do. What you're going to find is the judgment of God. You're going to find that you have derailed yourself, that you didn't actually know Him or trust Him. You simply knew some things about Him. And the fact is, is we have to know that some of us may be fooling ourselves into thinking that we're trusting Jesus. And what it is, is we've done is we've thrown some things like the Lord's Supper around ourselves to convince ourselves, okay, I've done enough that Jesus will just kind of let me skate on by. And we're not really running a race, and we're not really self-disciplined, and we're not showing any self-control, and we're not pursuing Him or treasuring Him. We're simply going, these are some safeguards as I really do what I want. And Paul is making sure that they understand that it's not just that he's telling them that's not sufficient, it's that Scripture has already shown that that is not sufficient. That seeing God set you off on this miraculous way does not mean that you cannot be derailed. And so verse 13, sorry, verse 12, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So now he's not writing to the weaker brother. He's writing to the stronger one. He says, you think you're good. Pay attention. If you think that this couldn't be you, pay attention so you don't fall. And then he gives them hope. He says, so no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Do you notice what he doesn't say? He doesn't say he'll take away the desire to be tempted, <laughs> right? He doesn't say you'll never want that again. He's saying, look, there are going to be things that you're going to always look back to your Egypt, to your idols, to the things that you've longed for and wanted that were a part of your past, and you're going to go, that wasn't so bad, was it? I wouldn't mind a little more of that. I I'll just, I'll just dabble in it for a little bit because I got the Lord's Supper over here. I'm good. And we go back to this thing that was actually, had enslaved us, that owned us, that was looking to destroy us, and we run back to it. And what Paul says is, look, God will give you a way out. That temptation is not going to, it's not stronger than you. It's not stronger than what God's done in you. You can overcome it, but you may not want to. Right? And so I think sometimes as we fight our sin, there are times where we're like, 
I don't really, God, you said you give us a way out, but I'm not going to really look too hard for it because I just, I really kind of want to do this. And, and so Paul's saying, look, you may not always want to, but this is where discipline and self-control come in, that we understand that we're headed somewhere. We see the finish line, and we're running towards it because Christ has saved us, and we want to reflect Him accurately to the world that's watching. This is what part of the self-control is, is that we flee from idolatry, verse 14, that we flee from it. And so here's what Paul has done. He says, look, God rescued the people of Israel. They entered the wilderness as they were headed to the promised land, and most of them got derailed. Church in Corinth, us, God rescues you. He pulls you out of the things that enslaved you. And now we're on our race to being with Him for all eternity. And He's saying, take heed that you don't derail just like the people of God did, the Israelites did. This is our warning this morning. And here's why it's a warning. Because we have an enemy. We have an enemy that's on the prowl who is looking to destroy and to devour us. And Paul says in Ephesians that our, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against spirits and principalities. Right? There's, a, there's an enemy at play looking to destroy you. And what was going on is the people in Corinth weren't going, you know what we want to do today? We want to worship idols. Paul, is it okay? They, were, they didn't think what they were doing was worshiping false gods. They thought what they were doing was hanging out with friends, enjoying a meal, because they're like, we know idols aren't real. And Paul is like, but you are like, as you're there, there is power there, and it's demonic power. And he says, and you're associating yourself with it. Because when we take the Lord's Supper, what we're saying is, Jesus, the reason I have hope and peace and salvation and rescue is because of what you did at the cross. And so in this, I'm communing with you. And I'm looking at my brothers and sisters who are taking it. I'm saying, we're together in this because we trust Jesus. And he's like, so if you understand that's what the Lord's Supper is, how can you think it's not that when you go and commune with false gods? That you're not somehow saying, I'm okay with this. He's like, they're mutually exclusive. And our enemy is looking to take us out of the race. And the way he's going to do that is not, he's not waving like, here's the thing, this, this week, you're not tempted to go and eat barbecue that's been sacrificed to some false god, right? The issue in Corinth is not our issue. That's not our issue. And so you're going, this would be easy not to go and worship at the temple of Diana, right? Like, not a temptation for us. But for them, they didn't even know that that's, they were really messing up. Paul is having to, like, separate some things here. Our enemy is crafty. And so the things that may be taking you off the race or out of the race are things that you're actually really comfortable with, right? Things that you're not even aware might be an issue, they said, look, Paul, it's just food. And Paul says, it's not just food. It's not. So the question for us as we end this morning is this. What are the ones that we need to be aware of? What are the things this week that may take us out of the race? And the two that come to mind most, most common for us it's going to be comfort, right? Comfort, ease, and the pursuit of stuff, right? It's just, it's just going like, I just want to be 
comfortable, right? I just want to have what I need and not too much, right? And, and what happens is that you don't have this like demonic thing laid in front of you that goes, oh man, I want that instead of Jesus. We just get these like things that seem like they're not sin or good. They're just neutral. And we just begin to pursue them. And then we pursue them. And then we pursue them. And here's what happens. The enemy is just slowly turning up the temperature. And we are completely unaware until you look up one day and you're like, I got to do whatever I can to keep this. I can't lose what I've gained. I can't lose cars and money and house. I can't give up retirement. I can't give up ease. I can't give up comfort. And so when, when Paul in, in Scripture begins to say, hey, there's a cost to following Jesus, and we're like, but that's not the cost. Like, my comfort couldn't be the cost. So let's find another cost. But Scripture calls us to hospitality, and it calls us to lay down our freedoms for the sake of others, and it, it calls us to serve one another, right? And so we're like, but not, not in the things that I've accrued, right? Like, I can do that somewhere else. I can do that at, at the church building, not in my place of comfort, right? And so you're like, is that really an idol? Is, it, is that really taking us away? And, and what a Scripture is going to say is like, is something leading us towards Jesus in mission or something leading us away from it, right? And what we want to do is we want to say, well, I don't think it's either. I just want to be here because here is comfortable. And Paul says, no, no, no. Like, right, why are they going to these mills? It wasn't because they wanted to worship other gods. They're going for social reasons and for community reasons and just because that's what people did. And to not do those things would be to draw a strange eye, a strange look, some maybe be ostracized a little bit, right? For us not to do what everyone else is doing in our culture and pursuing ease and comfort and things and always just a little more and always just a little more, to not do that will draw looks and wonders and comments and maybe a little ostracism because people then are like, wait a second, are you saying I'm worshiping something I shouldn't be worshiping? How dare you? fine, it's just easier to go along with it, right? So, so you're, our idols and the things the Spirit may be revealing in your heart this morning in this passage aren't going to be Artemis, right, <laughs> and temple meat, but it's going to be things that we're just really comfortable with that are just slowly but surely taking us out of the race because there hasn't been self-control, and there hasn't been discipline, and we're just kind of over here, and all of a sudden we look up, and we're like, and I'm not even really kind of pointing at Jesus anymore. But I know about you. I got the Lord's Supper, so we're good, right? Paul's saying no. Run the race that we've been given, right? Practice self-control. Practice discipline. Look at the things that are making you not really treasure Jesus, that are taking you off of mission, so that's the question that we ask, right? When we look at jobs, when we look at homes, when we look at like acquiring new things, when we look at relationships, when we look at where we're going to live, is this going to make me treasure Jesus more? Or do I know enough to at least say that, right? Is this going to actually make me, put me in relation to mission so that I can serve others better? Or is it just something that I can, right, like kind of baptize with some language, because I know enough Christian talk to justify it. Right, like, so this passage, chapter 10, doesn't strike us hard. But the conversation we've had over the last three or four minutes, 
right? You're like, man, those are fighting words. Now you're getting in my business, right? That's, that's what is happening now as Paul is writing the church in Corinth. And what Paul is going to finish it with this is, we love others. We are not called as Christians to make sure that we are taken care of. Me is taken care of. I am taken care of. We're called to serve one another, to lay down our freedoms and our rights for the sake of the body, that we do it for the sake of the gospel, that people would know Jesus, and that we would reflect the character of Jesus in our world, both to our brothers and sisters in Christ and to a world who doesn't know Him. And that was one who laid down his rights, left heaven to come in humility, to walk among us, right? Do our lives reflect that? Or do we have some other things where we're like, Jesus, I really want this. Would you give it? Help me get it. I'm still kind of looking at you, but you help me get what I really want. Church, we, we need each other to finish the race well. Right? Because sometimes the water's getting turned up in our own lives slowly enough that we just don't notice it. And we need our brothers and sisters in Christ to say, hey, can I, can I ask you something here? Can, I know this might be a little painful. I'm not right. Like, and that's, that was what was going on. They're going, can we eat meat or not? Church, we have to ask ourselves, where, where are the idols for our community, in our area, in our time? And where are we potentially going to see people get derailed instead of finishing the race well? Paul's going to lay out some, some considerations for how this looks in individual relationships next week as we finish chapter 10 and work into 11. Um, what and again, we say this often, but what I love about Redeemer is that we don't feel like we have to put like a, a period at the end of every sermon that what we've done now is we've kind of just laid it out and said, so now let's enter conversation. Like, let's trust that the Spirit will reveal to us some idols in our own hearts, minds, lives. Maybe He'll reveal some Redeemer idols that most of us have, not just some of us, and that we would begin to do the work of self-control and discipline of treasuring, trusting, depending on Jesus so that we won't get derailed in the wilderness on the way to the promised land, right? But that we would rightly pursue Him. Let's pray.